then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil so good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, or a sacrifice by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's uh, pray before we begin. Father, once again, we come to you. We are weak, but you are strong. And so we ask you to take your word and bring it to each one of our hearts so that none of us goes away empty this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been uh, plodding through Romans. Some say you're going too fast. Well, uh, I don't have that much time left in my life 
Uh, so I've got to uh, get it in while I can. This uh, chapter 3 is actually a continuation of chapter 2. We talked about a courtroom last week. And for those of you who are very familiar with the Japanese court or the courts in your land, uh, I apologize. The scenario I gave you last week was for the American court, which is far different. And so uh, you have to make a little adjustment in your your thinking uh, for that. However, this is a courtroom. There is a judge. And there is a situation or a issue that is at stake here for all of us. Every man, woman, and child ever born and whoever be living after we're gone is that this is at stake for humanity. This courtroom scene. Our lives are on the line. That's what the court is all about. And so Paul is really, in many ways, he is the one who is declaring to the world that this is a case that needs to be made for all of humanity, but not only for humanity, but also for the character and person of God. That's the issues. That's the issue that started in the beginning, even actually before the world was created. And that is that God's name be held up and glorified and exalted, because not because he's an egotist, but because of who he is as God. When we use the word God, it's so diluted these days. We really don't understand what we mean when we say God. And that's why the God of the Bible has so many names. It's not a a bunch of gods. It's one God with all these facets. Or he's like a multi-diamond. And each of them has its light and cast that light. Each quality that he has needs to be beheld, to be looked at, to be examined, to be understood, to be felt, to be owned by us. That is who is at stake. But what has he done for us? Well, first of all, he's our creator. He's the one who made us in his image. And that made someone very, very upset and angry. And that was Lucifer himself. That was Satan, who once held the highest rank in heaven. And because of his disobedience and his egotism and his pride, he was cast down out of heaven. But not all his power was taken from him. He had power over, in fact, the dark place. 
And that happened to be where God began. And we started last year in talking about Genesis and how God looked and there was darkness over the earth. And then he began his creative act of bringing light to this dark place. This place where Satan actually still has dominion and God has not wrenched it away from him because of one reason. He's a just God. And he lets the course of life go, but he has a plan. And that plan is to bring many sons and daughters to himself. And so he had this magnificent plan to populate this incredible ball, this incredible sphere, and that man would then walk in the ways of Creator God and populate the earth. And this would be a place where God could point and say, these are my people. I am their God. But there was a fly in the ointment and Satan was there and Eve was there to listen and gave in to him. And through that, she sinned, gave to her husband, they sinned together. And God's judgment has been on us ever since. But today we're going to look into chapter 3, which really shows two things. First of all, that God is the true God. Let God be true and every man a liar. How many of you have never told a lie in your life? How many of you can remember your last lie? How many wish you could take that lie back? We are liars. And most of our motivation comes out of self-protection. It's a defense. It is something that we do sometimes when it's kind of crazy. That we lie when we don't need to lie sometimes. How many fall into that category? I have many times. Why? God is true and every man a liar. It's at the base of our heart. But there's another thing. And that is that God is a just God, a righteous God. He is not like some of the gods of Japan or in other countries or even America. He's a just God, holy in every way because his actions are right and good and only good. And so in the courtroom with Paul, 
the defense lawyer as well as the prosecuting lawyer making a case for God. God is on trial. Let God be true and every man a liar, the just and the justifier. Our outline is very simple, two points. Paul starts out, first of all, in verses 1 to 20, in arguing these special people that God set aside for himself through a man named Abraham. And that promise to Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations. But he was 100 years old and still did not have a real heir. And through God's promise, and as a picture of the promise, the ultimate promise of God, Abraham had a son through his wife, Sarah. And then when this son was a teenager or maybe a little older, I'm not sure, God said, take your son, your only son, up to a mountain I'll tell you about. To a mountain called Moriah, which today we call Jerusalem or Zion. Abraham took his son obediently. And God said, sacrifice him there. And so the boy carried the wood. Abraham carried the fire. You don't want little little boys to carry fire. They went up to the mountain. And the boy says, "Uh, Dad, there's the wood and there's the fire. Where is the sacrifice? Abraham just plodded along. But he said, God will provide. And you know the story. Maybe some of you don't. I'll go ahead and finish it. They got up to the top of the mountain. They built an altar. Abraham took his son, laid him on the altar, and tied him to that altar. And then... He took out his knife, raised it, and was ready to bring it down on this only son, his precious son, the only one that really had a promise of bringing a righteous people to the earth through Abraham. And an angel said, Stop! before Abraham plunged the knife into the chest of his son. Abraham obeyed, did not carry through. God could trust this man. This is a picture, a very vivid picture of what God had in his heart and mind for every one of us as sons and daughters, that we not die, that we not be the sacrifice. And Abraham looked, and here was a ram caught in a, in a bush. 
God will provide. Jehovah Jireh, we call him. He unbound his son and the two of them. I could just see them. Went over there, grabbed the horns of this ram, unloosed him out of the bush, and Abraham plunged that knife into the ram. They lifted it up as it was bleeding on the wood. They started a fire, and that was the first crucifixion, the demonstration of the crucifixion. And so began the Jewish advantage. In verses 1 to 20, second point, Jesus is the advocate or Jesus' advocacy. I'm going to talk about Jesus and his offering. What it means through the law of works and the law of faith. Let's begin. Romans 3, then what advantage has the Jew or what value is circumcision? Paul argues much in every way. This ritual that God had asked Abraham to perform to set himself apart from all the other peoples of the earth was kind of a sign of the covenant that God was to make with Abraham and with his offspring. And we talked about this last week, that there was no value in it. But Paul says now in chapter 3, what advantage has the Jew? What is a value of circumcision? And Paul says emphatically, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the word of God, the Old Testament. And the, the understanding of what we have as Christians built on that foundation. It's not a different religion. Christianity is not a different religion from Judaism. It's built on the same foundation. And let's not forget that as Christians. Do any of you have a Jewish friend? I have several. Anybody else? Think of, yeah, oh, that's right. He's a a Jew. Yeah, I do have a friend who's a Jew. If you happen to meet a Jew in Tokyo, I would encourage you to say, oh, thank you so much for what your people gave to us Gentiles. Thank you for the word of God that you protected for centuries. Thank you for saving that for us. I want to thank you. Okay, how many will promise to to do that next time you meet a Jew? They will be surprised. They will be very surprised. They will be delightfully surprised, I'm sure. Paul says... First of all, that it was the Jews that were entrusted with his word, not the Gentiles. Then he goes on to say, but what if some of those Jews are unfaithful? Hey, 
God's plan does not rest on our faithfulness, nor on the Jews' faithfulness. God's plan is based upon himself as the creator God, not some God that was made or was created by someone, but by the God, the creator God. It's like you paint a picture or you do something that is personally yours. Some of you women make banners and things like that. In your creativity, you got that from God. But that article that you make or have bought or whatever, that belongs to you. In the same way, we men, women, children, belong to the Creator God. There's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. That's just the saying we say in, in American. But uh, thank him for making you. Acknowledge him in your life. Their faithlessness doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. By no means, Paul says, let God be true and everyone a liar that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul is very emphatic about that. Goes on in verses 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And Paul again says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If my sinfulness shows him even more sinless and perfect and just, then I should get some credit for it too, right? Paul's sometimes uses this kind of uh, extreme logic, I call it. That's probably not the right definition, but anyway, it is extreme. He goes out as far as he can in order to bring the truth into the argument. He says this later on in Romans. Well, let's just go ahead and sin that grace may abound. No, that's, that's funny or fuzzy logic. You know what fuzzy logic is? Well, they invented it back in the 60s or 70s here in Japan. Would you believe that? Fuzzy logic. You know what that is? Well, I'll explain it to you later. Paul was criticized for the way he argued. And some people took his words out of context. And Paul says, they're the ones that need to be, they deserve to be judged and condemned. Not me. I'm trying to bring you some understanding of the way that we as human beings live and act. 
What then, in verse 9, what then are Jews, are we Jews any better off? And Paul says something that has become a colloquialism or a saying that we have in English. Paul is saying, no way, man. No way. Are Jews any better off? No way. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles are under sin. And now he starts a amazing, very amazing compilation of scriptures that he puts together. And I'd like to read through them. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is an amazing statement that Paul makes, and it is extracted from the Jewish scriptures. All of it. Okay. We cheated just a little bit on this. You'll notice on the... Yep, you see the references there. And I don't know whether you noticed that as we were going down through that statement that Paul made. He is actually quoting from, from about 10 or 12 different references throughout all the scrolls of the Old Testament. How did Paul do that? Well, easy. He just went to Bible Gateway on, on the Internet, plugged in the words, and boom! All those references are right there. Or BibleHub.com. Anybody ever use that one? That's a great site. Everything's free. That's what I like about it. I'm part Jewish. (laughs) Paul did not have that gift or that technology. They were all in scrolls. But you remember who Paul was? He was a Pharisee. And he studied the law since he was a little boy. And he memorized it. Memorization, that's, that's what computers were called back in Paul's day. This was a computer. And many of our minds these days, we think we're very smart. We're getting dumber by the day simply because we're not thinking and we just plug it in. You know, when I was preaching here 20 years ago in Japan, I wish I'd had a computer. I had to learn all that stuff, the Japanese and how to say it in Japanese. And it wasn't just the ordinary Japanese off the street language. It was this high religious language that even you Japanese didn't understand. (laughs) Now we can just plug it into Google Translate, and man, you better look carefully at what uh, they give you as a translation. (laughs) I 
tried to do this with some friends that were coming to visit us. And I wrote back and I said, we'll meet you at such and such a place. And you know what the translation said? I have a bucket of water that I'm going to see you. No. Google's got a long way to go yet. Paul had memorized these passages. He knew them. He could pull them out. In fact, we went back through this. He was talking about the mouth, the tongue, uh, the words, all of these things. Throat, tongues, lips, mouth. You think he put those words into the computer and got it all out there? No, he had memorized it. He knew where they were from. In fact, look at all these passages that he knew like that in recall. Faster than your computer can do it. Back to verse 19. And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. Paul was talking about tongues and lips and uh, mouths. He's saying now, every mouth may be stopped. We do not have anything to say for ourselves. We are without excuse. Every one of us here. Every one of us. And the whole world is being held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We talked about this last week. The Jews had the law that Paul memorized. And many of them memorized. They had the law. Like the Ten Commandments. Anybody heard of the Ten Commandments? That comes from the law. In fact, it's the compilation of basically all of the Mosaic law. And we, as Gentiles, as Paul argued last week, well, in chapter 2, that we talked about, was our conscience. Every man, woman, and child is given a conscience. We believe that. We understand that. We understand what sin is. We talked about these two-year-olds that understand what doing wrong is. Let's go to Romans 3, 23, 25. How many of you have memorized Scripture? I'm checking to see what kind of Christians you all are. Okay. And probably, particularly if you're a navigator, that, that's a, a Christian organization, that they have these little cards, and you memorize those cards, except that sometimes when you memorize that verse, it's pulled out of context. I'm not criticizing the navigators now, please. But those cards don't tell the whole story or the context. Same with this verse that I'm going to show you. It's out of context because there's more in it. What we're going to do right now Think of yourself 
as in grade school, okay? Can you put yourself from your, some of you have PhDs here, uh, just put that aside, or maybe you just have a brand new master's degree, and put that aside. You can look at it when you want to, but right now, just put it aside. We're grade school. We're going to memorize the context of Romans 3.23. I learned this when I was a young boy. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and have come short or fall short of the glory of God. That's all I memorized. But that is just a fraction of the truth of what we're talking about. And I know the navigators have another verse that follows somewhere in another chapter, another book, whatever, to support that idea. But I don't know why they do it. Because the gospel is contained in these next three verses. And we're going to memorize that right now, okay? So let's put that up. Okay. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice or propitiation, as Katie read. We put a simpler word in there, sacrifice, by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, how many lines do you see up there? This, oh, by the way, we always say the memory verse as a good navigator. Romans 3, 23 to 25. You don't have to say ESV. but uh, there's How many lines do we see there? Five. Okay, how many fingers? Do you, well, most of us have five fingers on our hand, right? Okay, Bob Kindig of uh, Celebration of Love taught us how to memorize with your hand, right? Okay, so we're going to do this. Put your hand up like this. Okay. What's the shortest finger that you've got? Not, this is a thumb. This is not a finger. Okay? So this is, you start with the smallest finger. And you curve it down if you've got that. Okay. So all have sinned. Let's say it together. And fall short of the glory of God. Short. We're short. Okay? This is it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Next finger is what we call the ring finger. According to uh, ancient philosophers, this ring finger has a nerve that goes all the way to your heart, if you can believe that. But anyway, this is a ring that Katie gave me. So there's a gift there, and it was by her grace. So we say, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Okay, put that one down. Now we got three more. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. On my hand, anyway, it's the tallest finger. Why? Because Jesus Christ is there. He's the supreme sacrifice. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is this finger? Pointing finger. It's not a gun, boys. (laughs) It's a pointing finger. Whom God put forward as a sacrifice by his blood. And then you want to lock it in like Bob Kendig taught, taught us and put your thumb here to be received by faith. Okay? You got it? Simple. Okay, let's say it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. Let's say it again. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. Romans 3:23 to 25. Okay, let's say it again. Romans 3:23 to 25. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is through Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 3, 25. Wonderful truth that God has given us in this context. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. What does Paul mean? Because in his divine forbearance. Forbearance, what does that mean? Well, if you put... Okay, I'll admit it. I love cheesecake with strawberries on it. (laughs) If you put a cheesecake in front of me, it's very hard for me to say no. How about you? Same, but you know, God is God. And he will not be tempted by anyone. For in his forbearance, he can hold himself back. What this shows is that God had a plan, an eternal plan, to bring many to himself, billions, in fact, to himself. In his forbearance, he waited, and he waited, and he waited. However, he did give the Jews the law. And they perfected that law. And it was a good law and laws. All who live by it live pretty good lives. The Jewish people. You know that there's more Jewish inventors than any other nation, nationality in the world? Why is that? 
I believe God has honored his people. Thank the Jews for the fact that they were invested with the word of God. But God in his forbearance held back and held back till you and I came on the scene for him to show his salvation to us. Passed over former sins. No, he didn't pass over. As Paul is arguing, the Jews who trusted in God's word and followed his command to sacrifice this animal for your sins or for your family's sins, God acknowledged that as righteousness. But God himself could not grant to you eternal life until the perfect sacrifice came. And it says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, who was, in fact, the fulfillment of all those animals that were slaughtered in the Old Testament times, all the way up until Jesus Christ and a little bit beyond. God was holding back for those who really believed in him, who would trust in him, to receive the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what this means. That's what this is all about. It's about God's justice, his righteousness. He's the one that we worship. We don't worship ourselves. We're not pointing to ourselves as the goody-goodies. We're not. Even Christians, you're not so hot. You're not so good. Jesus is. He's the one that we worship. We're thankful for God forbearing and holding back so that I could come to know him, so that you could because he knew that I would be born and I would need a savior. And you would too. God is just and the justifier. Amen.